The Tom Woods Show, episode 1237. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Homeschooling parents, it's going to be time to start thinking about next year before you know it. Let me recommend to you the self-taught Ron Paul curriculum, which I've been using with my daughters. It's going to preserve your mental health while it gives them a top-notch education. Plus, get $160 worth of free bonuses when you use my link, ronpaulhomeschool.com. Hey, everybody. Tom Woods here. It is 9-11 as I record this, 2018. I'm in New York right now, as a matter of fact, as I mentioned the other day. So you're going to be hearing some construction noise in the background. Possibly. You may hear it. I certainly hear it on the fifth floor. I hate being on the fifth floor. I'd like to be on the 55th floor, but such is the luck of the draw. I'm on the fifth floor in this hotel. I am going to be seeing Ian Anderson tonight. He was the guest on episode number three of the Tom Woods Show uh, with Jethro Tull, his band, which he's now just going under his own name these days. He sold over 60 million albums worldwide. And um, to my business email list, I have two email lists. And to my business list the other day, I sent out an email about what a good businessman he is and how frugal he is. He makes sure the young band members and staff members understand that they go to the mini bar, they're paying for that themselves. This, he says they understand very quickly this is a job, not a party. But he talks about working with Excel spreadsheets and not staying in the fanciest hotels. He's a rich guy who lives in a 400-acre mansion, don't get me wrong. But when it comes to avoidable expenses, he is an insane control freak about it. Very Anyway, very interesting stuff. That's another reason why you should be on my email lists. You can get on them at tomsfreebooks.com. Anyway, so here I am, and it's 9-11, so I thought, what the heck? I'm, I'm going to talk about 9-11. I don't think – I'm not sure I've done that on previous – 9-11s since the show began. I could be wrong about that. I don't think I've done it. So I have a few ideas for what I might do on this episode. I'm just going to plow through them, and maybe this will be a quick episode, and maybe it'll go on for five hours. I don't know. I think I, I'm going with quick, because really, at this point, what can be said about 9-11 that hasn't been said already about those attacks? My own experience was I was teaching at that time, and as I drove in to work that morning, I heard on the news about the first plane hitting one of the buildings. And I think I concluded, as most people probably did at that time, that this was some horrible and bizarre accident. But obviously, when the second one hit, well, that's uh, that's deliberate, of course. So I got to work in between the two planes hitting. So I got up in front of the classroom. I started uh, preparing my material for the day. And then an administrator came into the room and told us that a second plane had hit and we were all being sent home. And I remember muttering under my breath, the chickens have come home to roost. I actually said that to myself. Nobody could hear me. And I got in the car and drove home and I'm trying to get all, as everybody was, all the news and information I could possibly get there was a report that a car bomb had gone off outside the New York University Medical Center. That turned out to be untrue, but who knew what to believe at that point? I remember a lot of people thinking, and then of course when the when the buildings came down, a lot of people were thinking they should go donate blood, and so many people were donating blood that, I don't know if I'm remembering this right, I think they were turning people away. It was just overwhelming, the response of people. 
Well, of course, 9-11 then became a justification for what's happened in foreign policy over the past 17 years. And, uh, of course, for many people, too, remember, Dave Smith cites this as his real turning point. It was that moment in the 2007-2008 presidential debates. It was in 2007 that this happened when Rudy Giuliani confronted Ron Paul on this because Dr. Paul was saying that he believed that blowback had something to do with why the United States was attacked. It wasn't that the United States is wonderful and we wear blue jeans and we have the First Amendment and that's why we're hated. He said, this is, you know, this is not plausible. He says, we're hated because of what our government has been doing. The hornet's nest has been stirring up around the world. So we all remember this exchange. Giuliani couldn't believe this. and How dare he say this? Because, of course, nobody's allowed to say anything like that. You're supposed to stick to the script about the benign empire. That empire was built up through a bipartisan effort. So it really is at the heart of what the regime is all about. You can't speak ill of the empire. But he did precisely that. And then I believe it was the next day, the very next day, this was a brilliant move. I loved it because, of course, this helped to spread word of Dr. Paul as if the debate itself hadn't done that already. He appeared alongside Michael Scheuer, who I believe has been a guest on this program, but it's been so long. I'm virtually certain I've had him on. I, I know I've had I'll link to it in the show notes page. That would be tomwoods.com slash 1237. But those of you who go back in your libertarianism, back to the first Ron Paul campaign, well, some of you go back to the very first Ron Paul campaign, 1988, but I'm talking about 2008. You'll recall Michael Scheuer. That name will ring a bell to you because he'd been the head of the CIA's Osama bin Laden unit. So he had a certain credibility on these issues. And he appeared alongside Dr. Paul at a press conference where they presented a large stack of books that Rudy Giuliani should read. I think they called it uh, Rudy's Summer Reading to get him familiarized with what the CIA itself had been saying about the cause of the anger of the Muslim world toward the U.S. And um, it was just a brilliant move. You had a guy who's unimpeachable on issues like this, saying that the only person on that debate stage who was speaking any sense and who seemed to have any familiarity with anything was Ron Paul. Now, Scheuer himself has a blog called Non-Intervention. It has a hyphen, and I think he had to change the URL recently because of some service issues, and it, it was a nightmare, But uh, so I don't remember it off the top of my head. But Scheuer is not himself, let's say, a 100% non-interventionist. And in fact, I believe his position is that we've gotten to a point where our government has so angered so many people in the Muslim world that nothing that's done at this time can change that. No amendment of our government's behavior can change the anger toward the U.S., an anger that could very easily spill over into violent activity toward the U.S. So I believe Scheuer's view was, at this point, now we don't just need to be involved in any old arbitrary war, but, but it may indeed be necessary for our government to track down certain types of radicals and just kill them mercilessly. Because there's no other way, now that they've been stirred up, there's no other way to ensure our safety. Now that they've done this to us, the government have done this to us, getting us so hated, we may just have to go in there and kill them after all. So he's not a complete non-interventionist by any means. But his view was certainly that Ron Paul's view was closer to the truth than that of the view of uh, 
anybody else, let's say. So now I know that there are criticisms of the blowback theory, and I know it's been said, look, there are Muslim attacks in countries that have only the remotest and most trivial connection to American foreign policy. So what is going on there? And there is something to that. Um, I think Scott Horton makes the strongest case for blowback. Just He will hear no dissent from blowback. He makes the strongest case there is to make about it. But regardless of how that all comes out, there are two facts that I think speak in its favor. One was a point that Scheuer himself made, which was that back in the 1980s, the Iranians were trying to stir up hatred of the United States precisely on the basis of what the McCains of the world would have said, that they hate us for our freedoms and our, you know, our First Amendment and our women in the workplace and our, you know, consumption of alcohol or whatever it is, okay? But that just was a flopperoo. That that didn't go anywhere. What did go somewhere was the very self-consciously defensive platform and rhetoric of bin Laden, which was based instead on the idea that the Muslim world has a lot of grievances and we need redress of those grievances. And they were all defensive arguments about whether it was American troops in Saudi Arabia, which was uh, considered to be a desecration, um, whether it was U.S. policy with regard to Israel and the Palestinians. Now, a lot of people say that's very much low down in bin Laden's priorities. Well, be that as it may, he did mention that issue. And of course, there were uh, the, the U.S. was supporting, the U.S. government was supporting some regimes in the Middle East that he did not approve of. And so that goes to show that the defensive argument that, look, look what they've done to us, now we have to fight back, resonated much better than look at how decadent the West is. So I do think that's a point in favor of the blowback theory. Then secondly, it's also true that the United States actually had an excellent reputation in the Middle East throughout much of the 20th century. And I've often given as a concrete example, but there's a lot of uh, anecdotal evidence as well, the so-called King Crane Commission in the wake of World War I, when a number of countries had been made League of Nations mandates, and those mandates were going to be assigned to various powers, uh, major powers in the world, to administer until they were deemed to be ready for full independence. And so, for example, in Syria, the question was actually asked of people, which of these countries would you like? Would you like England? Would you like France? Would you like the United States? Which, which of these major powers would you like to administer you as, as a League of Nations mandate? And they overwhelmingly went for the United States. Uh, so it's not like the United States only got the First Amendment in the 1970s. It had the First Amendment and all these Enlightenment freedoms at that time. And that didn't seem to cause a problem uh, in terms of the uh, attitude toward Americans. So something else changed in the interim. Now, you could say there was a revival of a more radical kind of Islam that happened in between, but there was also the expansion of U.S. policy into, you know, a great deal of intervention in the Middle East. And it's true that it can be difficult to disentangle those two causes, but certainly they're at work, and we can argue about which one is more weighty. But my view would be, if there's a hornet's nest, why stir it up unnecessarily, especially when the United States, as Scheuer said, is very much a sideshow in what Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda care about. The U.S. is a sideshow. They have their own problems in their own backyard. So maybe let them deal with those problems. Uh, whereas 
it seems like the neocon view is you stick your head into a hornet's nest, like the dumbest thing you could possibly do. And then when somebody says, why don't you just take your head out? They say, well, that would be giving in to the hornets. What? Why? Why are you thinking this way? Not helpful. So let me read for you. I want to read the statement, the, uh, I guess an article that uh, Scott loves. This is Harry Brown. Harry Brown, of course, uh, was an author, a, a very successful businessman. He was a very, very articulate defender of libertarianism. And he wrote something on September 12th, September 12th, 2001. And I want to just read it to you verbatim. Here's Harry Brown. The terrorist attacks against America comprise a horrible tragedy, but they shouldn't be a surprise. It is well known that in war, the first casualty is truth, that during any war, truth is forsaken for propaganda. But sanity was a prior casualty. It was the loss of sanity that led to war in the first place. Our foreign policy has been insane for decades. It was only a matter of time until Americans would have to suffer personally for it. It is a terrible tragedy of life that the innocent so often have to suffer for the sins of the guilty. When will we learn that we can't allow our politicians to bully the world without someone bullying back eventually? President Bush has authorized continued bombing of innocent people in Iraq. President Clinton bombed innocent people in the Sudan, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Serbia. President Bush Sr. invaded Iraq and Panama. President Reagan bombed innocent people in Libya and invaded Grenada, and on and on it goes. Did we think the people who lost their families and friends and property and all that destruction would love America for what happened? When will we learn that violence always begets violence? Supposedly, Reagan bombed Libya to teach Muammar Gaddafi a lesson about terrorism. But shortly thereafter, a Pan Am plane was destroyed over Scotland and our government tried to convince the world it was Libyans who did it. When will we learn that teaching someone a lesson never teaches anything but resentment, that it only inspires the recipient to greater acts of defiance? How many times on Tuesday did we hear someone describe the terrorist attacks as cowardly acts? But as misguided and despicable as they were, they were anything but cowardly. The people who committed them knowingly gave their lives for whatever stupid beliefs they held. But what about the American presidents who order bombings of innocent people, while the presidents remain completely insulated from any danger? What would you call their acts? When will we learn that forsaking truth and reason in the heat of battle almost always assures that we will lose the battle? And now, as sure as night follows day, we will be told we must give up more of our freedoms to avenge what never should have happened in the first place. When will we learn that it makes no sense to give up our freedoms in the name of freedom? What should be done? First of all, stop the hysteria. Stand back and ask how this could have happened. Ask how a prosperous country isolated by two oceans could have so embroiled itself in other people's business that someone would want to do us harm. Even sitting in the middle of Europe, Switzerland isn't beset by terrorist attacks because the Swiss mind their own business. Second, resolve that we won't let our leaders use this occasion to commit their own terrorist attacks upon more innocent people, foreign and domestic, that will inspire more terrorist attacks in the future. Third, find a way with enforceable constitutional limits to prevent our leaders from ever again provoking this kind of anger against America. 
There are those who will say this article is unpatriotic and un-American, that this is not a time to question our country or our leaders. When will we learn that without freedom and sanity, there is no reason to be patriotic? And now finally, let me share with you some excerpts and insights from a recent Pat Buchanan column called Balance Sheet of the Forever War. So he's going through to see, all right, well, what does this foreign policy have to show for itself? It's been very expensive and time-consuming, and a lot of people have died as a result of it. What does it have to show for itself? What does it have on the positive side of the ledger? And he begins by quoting a couple of U.S. generals. First, John Nicholson on his retirement Sunday after a fourth tour of duty and 31 months as commander of U.S. and NATO forces. He says, it is time for this war in Afghanistan to end. And then retired General Carl Eikenberry, who had preceded General Nicholson, said, we continue to fight simply because we are there. Absent political guidance and a diplomatic strategy, military commanders have filled the vacuum by waging a war all agree cannot be won militarily. Uh Uh-huh. Sounds like Scott Horton's book, Fool's Errand. So what is the balance sheet? What does the balance sheet show? According to Pat, in Afghanistan, the Taliban presence is more pervasive in more provinces than at any time since the regime was overthrown in 2001. Then in Syria... That seven-year civil war that Buchanan says the United States government helped to ignite by arming those rebels to overthrow Assad, that war looks like it's headed for its bloodiest battle yet. You've got the Syrian army backed by Russia and Iran. All eyes right now are on the Idlib province. And there, John Bolton has said, if any gas attack is launched then there will be some kind of American response. Now, even Pat Buchanan, Pat is not a loose cannon. Pat says in his column that when Bolton says something like that, he's basically inviting the rebels in Idlib to conduct a false flag gas attack to lure U.S. air power to their side. How about that? This whole thing could easily, Pat says, lead to a major conflict between the United States and Russia in Syria And yet, what vital interest of ours, he asks, is imperiled in Idlib province? Then meanwhile, just days ago, Saudi Arabia admitted that it made a mistake when it attacked a school bus using a U.S.-made fighter bomber. And here's what Pat says. The Saudi campaign to crush the Houthi rebels and return the previous regime to power could never succeed were it not for U.S.-provided planes, missiles, bombs, and air-to-air refueling. We are thus morally responsible for what is happening. Okay, that's how a reasonable person assesses the situation, not by mindlessly cheerleading the empire, which just seems to be, or ignoring the situation in Yemen is what most people do, but I still cannot get over the political theater surrounding the John McCain funeral. When would John McCain say we are morally responsible for these terrible decisions that are ruining people's lives overseas? Never would have dawned on him to say something like that. And here's Pat, the reviled Pat Buchanan, right, that I'll get in trouble even for mentioning Pat Buchanan in some libertarian circles because he's ritually impure in some areas. And so there's no, you're not allowed to mention him. But if you don't say something sweet and kind about John McCain, you're some kind of a crank. I don't follow these people's rules. At no time did I sign that social contract. Then he says, how about Libya? 
where the U.S. overthrew Gaddafi. So, well, right now we've got rival factions controlling Benghazi in the east and Tripoli in the west. August saw fighting break out in the capital. Then he says, in Iraq, we've got rival factions struggling for power, with recent elections seeing pro-Iranian and anti-American forces gaining ground. Then there's conflict with Iran involving sanctions. And finally, Pat says, when one adds up the U.S. dead and wounded from the wars we, I I hate that word we, the government, we should say, uh, have launched since 2001 with the Arab and Muslim wounded, killed, orphaned, widowed, uprooted, and turned into refugees, as well as the trillions of dollars lost, what benefits are there on the other side of the ledger? And then he adds that the U.S. appears to be moving to confront Russia in Ukraine, which takes us a bit afield from the 9-11 theme of the episode. And then Pat ends with this kind of sad note. He says, President Trump has yet to withdraw us from any of the wars he inherited, but he has kept us out of any new wars, a record worth preserving. We can't say that about the last two presidents. Isn't that something that we're reduced to that? Well, folks, all I can tell you is the best thing to do is to be a genuine maverick a real maverick, somebody who doesn't just hop back and forth between the Democrats and the Republicans from time to time, but a maverick who stands up to the Democrats and the Republicans, who stands up to the bipartisan war party. Just say things, point things out to people, uh, just make arguments that nobody hears. When Ron Paul said what he said in that debate, it shook people precisely because no one had ever heard that perspective. Or they had, but they'd never heard it expressed by anybody in public life. And now suddenly, somebody had said something forbidden and had refused to back down. You know the usual ritual, you say something that's not allowed. We've all decided, citizen, that's not allowed. But then the person backs down and apologizes. Oh, I'm so sorry, I can't believe I said something that strayed from the three-by-five card of allowable opinion. I'm so sorry, I hope you'll all take me back. And after a suitable amount of time, they get taken back. He refused to do that. That's the person we ought to emulate here. No, I'm not backing down. Sorry. I'm going to take this view, and I'm right, and it's important for me to stick with it because it is right, and people need to hear it. And that needs to be how you feel about libertarianism because there are some things that we believe. For example, having a shred of sanity in the wake of the horrific attacks of 9-11 that are going to be challenging for a lot of people. And it's going to be very tempting not to say what you know to be true. But that's just what they want, isn't it? That's just what they want. Don't give them the satisfaction. On the show notes page, I will try to dig up if it's on YouTube. It's got to be. That amazing press conference with Michael Scheuer. This was like an atomic bomb, but a good kind of atomic bomb. You can imagine one of those. To see this guy, who is unimpeachable, come out and say, yeah, Ron Paul's the only sensible one. That was amazing. That was a great, great, fantastic move. And uh, boy, those were great times that we had somebody out there willing to say those things. And it just didn't matter. It just didn't. And of course, I happen to know that when he walked off that debate stage that night, he thought he had done badly. He thought uh, there'd be no support for what he said. So how about that? Now, of course, we all know that he got tremendous support and everybody loved what he said, but how about that? He thought he would be hated for what he said, but he said it anyway. Can you imagine how many politicians act that way? Yeah, people are really going to hate this, 
but it just needs to be said. Who? Who acts that way? He did it, and of course he got the benefit of getting a lot of support from a lot of people precisely because they had enough sense to realize this benefits this man in no way. What possible benefit could he get from this? Um, or at least what obvious benefit? I mean, he did get a collateral benefit. As I say, he built up a, a big movement, but nobody could have predicted that. And the point is he himself didn't predict it. He didn't say, well, if I say this seemingly outlandish thing, I bet everybody will rally to me. He thought exactly the opposite. I know that because I know people who talked to him immediately after that debate. I didn't, but I know people who did. And he was he was not pleased at that moment. And then, whoa. <laughs> so he did the right thing, and it did change the conversation. There are more people who are looking skeptically at these interventions, and you can see that even online. Even sometimes people who are not sensible on a lot of other things, they see this clearly clearly. And that is the first step toward wisdom in all areas. So, all right, check out the show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 1237. I'll have a few juicy things for you over there. And thanks so much for listening, everybody. Oh, and by the way, today, if you hear this in time, the hashtag why I am anti-war. We're trying to get that to trend on Twitter. See if you can help us out. Thanks for listening. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.